Brothers and sisters, is there anywhere in Scripture where God explicitly commands for us to worship Him morning and evening, or morning and afternoon, on the Lord's Day? There isn't. Uh, The closest thing we get is that on the day of Christ's resurrection, Jesus appeared to His disciples both morning and evening. Uh, The Apostle John records it perhaps most strikingly for us. Uh, And it is curious that uh, obviously on the morning of Jesus' resurrection, he, uh, he appeared to the women, and on the evening of the a day of his resurrection, he appeared to the men, ladies first. Perhaps this is uh, the foundation of that uh, understanding. Uh, but does that mean that only the women should gather uh, to worship uh, in the morning and that only the men in the evening? Obviously, over 2,000 years, the church has never reached that conclusion and, uh, and that practice. Instead, the conclusion and the, and the practice uh, is that the church uh, for centuries uh, uh, has understood it to be the call uh, to worship Christ on the morning of his resurrection and to gather again to worship Christ on the evening, on the day of his resurrection. Uh, whoever wants to can demur, uh, but from my perspective, it's hard to argue against uh, the conviction, practice, and tradition of the generations, even the thousands and tens of thousands of believers who have gone before us. And so, here we are. But not only is this pattern established, morning and evening worship, but the order of the service as well. Uh, And as we have worked our way through the Lord's Day morning order of service, we, we come this evening to the offering the uh, the joke that gets told is uh, uh, is that with all the changes that uh, have been made in uh, in more modern times in how the church worships, uh, the one event uh, of worship that has survived is the offering, the preaching of the word, perhaps optional, if included, becomes more of a giving of advice and a telling of inspirational stories. Uh, the sacraments, largely gone from the worship service, except for maybe the, uh, to pick up a piece of bread and a, and a, a, a shot of grape juice as you, as you leave. Um, with the announcement given that there will be a baptism on Tuesday at the, at the local swimming pool. Uh, singing to God, well, obviously lots of singing in contemporary worship, but... Uh, Often, little of any substance. Um, Prayer, maybe at the start of the service, perhaps uh, just before the sermon. But definitely, prayer right before the offering. Uh, That's the other quip that, uh, that gets said, that prayer is largely hit or miss in contemporary worship, except right before the offering, because... Clearly, it will take a mighty act of God to separate the worshipers from the uh, money that they might place uh, within the offering plate. But the offering, uh, of course, we we need to maintain the offering. And uh, the reason is because 
reality determines it. Uh, with other things, the church can make it up as they go along uh, and get away with it. Um, but you can't get away from the cost of paying the church's mortgage uh, or the cost of keeping the building lit, uh, heated, cooled, and maintained uh, with all the required signage and, and, uh, and advertising. And everyone likes to have a full-time pastor uh, hopefully they like it, uh, and, uh, and that takes money. Um, so the offering has survived recent changes in worship. But we would say, I hope, that, that that's not enough. Uh, it's not enough to keep the lights on. Uh, the point of the offering is much, much more than that. And that's what I would have us uh, to learn or recall again Uh, this evening from God's Word. So looking at 1 Corinthians 16, and just the the first four verses, uh, the first point is this, the collection for the saints. Verse 1 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Here we see that our giving is meant always to have a practical point and purpose. And that point and purpose is for the blessing of the saints. There is some historical evidence, some of it uh, outside the historical events recorded in Scripture, but, uh, but evidence that the church back in Judea, centered in Jerusalem, was experiencing great persecution at this time. They needed help, starting with financial help. And so Paul doesn't just say, uh, please remember to pray for the suffering saints uh, of of Jerusalem. Instead, he calls for the, the wider church, the broader church, to support the church in Jerusalem financially. All we have to do is imagine that uh, tomorrow, it's not pleasant to imagine, but go with me on this. Uh, Imagine that tomorrow you log into your online banking and uh, you find out that your assets have been frozen by the government. Uh, You have no available funds to pay your bills and support yourself or your family. Again, that's not a pleasant thought, and uh, we can say, uh, oh, that, that could never happen in our day. I hope you're right. I hope that's right. Uh, I, I want to believe that it couldn't happen in our day. But it has happened in the history of the church, and starting in first century Jerusalem. So here also is uh, the testimony of Scripture for what we call Presbyterianism. Um, and I will admit, being the ecumenical guy that I am, uh, that this is not completely unique to Presbyterian churches. Uh, there are other denominations, other traditions uh, in which local churches look out for one another. But that's what I'm getting at, that, that it ought to strike us as uh, terribly significant that the Apostle Paul was raising money, calling for donations to be given from the church in Corinth for the church in Jerusalem. 
And it it might not seem so strange in our day. After all, every week, it would seem, uh, there is another disaster somewhere in the world, Um, a hurricane, a typhoon, uh, an earthquake, hundreds dead, thousands dead. Uh, And what happens? The nations begin sending money. Humanitarian organizations begin to send money to send aid, to send support, uh, which is all well and good. But what we don't realize is that such global concern for others really didn't start until Christ was born and lived and suffered and died and rose again from the dead and poured out His Spirit. And it started in the church. What, what we see today in terms of global concern between nations began with Christ and the church. It's borrowed capital, as we say. But it's just as Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, other versions say having a form of godliness, but denying its power. But the church is certainly not to be that body of people that have a form of godliness while denying its power. The giving of the church is to be done with the acknowledgement of the power of Christ by His Spirit at work in the church, and largely speaking, at work in the world. Not the denial of, but even the full acknowledgement of the power of Christ at work especially in the church. The gifts of the church should be given as we recognize that through us, God is giving to us and to others. The gifts of the church should be given as we recognize that through us, Christ is carrying forth His own ministry through His body, the church. I've always liked uh, this summary. I think you've heard it from me before. Uh, The summary, if you will, that the church is the body of Christ, redeemed by Christ, filled with the spirit of Christ, carrying forward the ministry of Christ, proclaiming the gospel of Christ, and bringing about the kingdom of Christ until the return of Christ. It makes it clear, first, that it's all about Christ. Second, that we are not those who have the appearance of godliness while denying its power. If the power behind our giving and the work of the church is not Christ, then it's only the appearance of godliness. The United States can give millions, if not billions of dollars to aid in in disaster relief around the world. Yet all the government is doing is printing up dollar bills, probably $100 bills, and sending them off on a pallet to some distant land. But when the church gives, even even in meager terms compared to the world, when the church gives, we give to brothers and sisters around the world, but starting at home, but then to other brothers and sisters indeed, around the world. 
there's lots more that can be said and some of you have your uh, political gears turning now and want to talk to me afterwards we can have that uh, discussion <clears throat> there's lots more that could be said but the point is that the collection the giving of the church is for the saints and Paul is not expecting anything more of the Corinthian church than he had already called for from the other churches. He seems to want to make that clear. He says, as I directed the churches of Galatia. I, I, I'm not singling you out, he says. So you also are to do this collection for the saints, uh, or collection of the saints for the saints. And what specific act is, uh, is Paul calling for? The second point is, on the first day. Uh, we made note of this passage and, and, uh, and this verse several sermons ago when we, when we were finding the, the teaching of God's Word that founds our, our first day worship. The reason for our first day worship starts with Christ rising again on the first day of the week. It continues with Christ appearing to his disciples morning and evening on the day of his resurrection, the first day of the week. But we find the further reason for our first day worship by way of references like this one. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Now, someone might say, well, but, you know, it's just a passing reference. It's, it's not a command that determines anything. But what's the point then? I mean, if it is just a passing reference. Instead, and again, the church has for centuries recognized the first day as the Christian Sabbath. In the Old Testament, by God's law, the church was anticipating the rest that would one day come. So they worked for six days and rested on the last, the seventh day. We, however, are the church living in the fullness of time. We live in the day of Christ's coming and resurrection so that we rest on the first day, even as the week and our work begins. But for our purposes here, most specifically, uh, uh, clearly, Paul is calling for offerings to be brought each first day of the week. Why the first day? Because that's when the church was gathering. Why did they gather on the first day? Because it was the, the monumental, reality-changing day of Christ's resurrection. And what was included in the worship of that day? The bringing of offerings to the, to the Lord. This is why we do what we do as we include in the service an offering, at least once each Lord's Day. It might be tradition. It ought to be tradition. But it's not merely tradition. There is a reason for the tradition and it's not just to pay the bills so that we can have a church building and a pastor. Our giving is commanded by God as we worship Him. The Old Testament, of course, abounds with references to bringing an offering to God and for God. Perhaps the most clear is Psalm 96, verse 8, 
which uh, we used as the, as the call to worship for this service. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. And given the context here of the Old Covenant uh, temple worship, the meaning is, is most certainly the, uh, the bringing of an offering of animal sacrifice to God. Uh, that's not where we are today because of Christ once for all, sacrifice on the cross. But, but we must still bring an offering. Even as the animal sacrifice had its monetary value, even as uh, the best of the crop and the unblemished of the flock uh, was to be brought, so the principle endures. That might sound rather cold to, to call it a principle, but let's go back and maybe use the word reality. The reality of worship must be the reality of our relationship to God as sinners and as His people. And, and, and so an, an atoning sacrifice must be made. Christ settled that for us by His cross. And so an atoning sacrifice uh, was made by Christ. And we must be every, ever mindful that only by the cross of Christ, only by the cross of Christ can we approach God to worship Him. But the reality of our relationship to God as creatures must also be what, what guides our worship. And, and what is that reality? We are sinners for whom God in Christ has made atonement so that we come by faith in that sacrifice. And we are creatures daily living in dependence upon God, our Creator. He daily supplies our needs so that at least weekly we are to bring an offering and come into His courts each first day of the week. Next, from Paul's instruction, giving as we prosper. Verse 2 again reads, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Let's first take note of uh, Paul's pastoral heart here. Paul's being very careful. He's being very, very sensitive here. He is definitely calling for the church to give, for each member of the church to give. He writes, each of you, but he also says this, each of you is to put something aside. So to start with, Paul is not interested in laying down ceremonial law. He's not establishing an amount or even a percentage determined by apostolic authority. Each of you is to put something aside. What does that mean? He is, he is clearly calling for an amount to be put aside. The point, uh, uh, the point is, uh, is that, it, that it be given, released from one's own possession, turned over to the leadership of the church. Because what happens, of course, if the gift uh, remains in one's possession? Well, um, something comes up and then all of a sudden we decide not to give it. Suddenly we have need of it. We decide not to give it, uh, because it's still in our possession, uh, our offering verse for this month uh, comes to mind here. 
uh, like clouds and wind without rain, is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. Uh, We can decide to give a gift. We can even figure in our minds what the gift will be. But until we actually give it, it remains a gift that we have not yet actually given. This is what Paul means by putting aside. And, and it really is but an echo from the, from the Old Testament of the idea of giving the first fruits. The first fruits was the early crop, the first of the, of the harvest. And the idea is, or at least part of the idea, is that God's people don't give after their own needs are met, but even before. You get your income and you give to the Lord to acknowledge that it has come from Him. What if something happens? A a pipe breaks, a a plumber needs to come out, um, the car breaks down and and repairs uh, must be made. And, And those are legitimate concerns and needs. But the greater concern, the greater concern that we should have is our concern for God's worship and his honor. So we are called to give, firstly, for God's honor, secondly, with concern for our own needs. I think this is where uh, Psalm 50 comes to bear again. I, uh, I'm not unaware that I keep going back to Psalm 50. Uh, it's such a, a key passage and, and chapter of God's Word. In Psalm 50, verse 10, we hear God testifying, uh, teaching, and even assuring us that every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. The point is to see that God owns it all and that God can place in our laps whatever He decides to give, whatever He knows that we need. And that's faith. I think we can recognize that requires faith to let God decide the degree and the level of blessing in our lives. But the temptation is always there to, we might say, second-guess God. I, I might need this. I, I better keep it. Um, I don't know what's coming. I should rather store it up. Well, granted, there, it's not necessarily wrong uh, to save with, with, with a storing up for future needs. But our first concern is to give out of the prosperity that God has granted. And that raises the point of how rich we are in Christ. Even the riches of heaven are in store for us. Uh, we tend to think only in terms of tomorrow or the, or the week, month, or year that lies ahead. But God's perspective, God's perspective and His promises are eternal. If, and, and if we take His perspective, which we obviously are called to do, I think it's obvious, we're called to take God's perspective. And when we do, then yes, we, we should have some concern for saving up for retirement. And yet I sometimes wonder, what What if every Christian in America lived and operated with with the plan to retire in a very comfortable double-wide in Terre Haute, Indiana? How much money would suddenly become available 
for the cause of ministry. Instead, we want to retire in luxury. Is it faith when we have a mansion waiting for us in heaven, but we insist on retiring in luxury? Is it faith to leave your children a nest egg? At least that's the excuse, I think, sometimes. When, when, is that faith when, when they might just end up fighting over it anyhow? I've seen that happen all too many times. Do we not realize that the biblical model is not parents leaving their children some significant inheritance, but parents raising their children and then receiving from their children the support that they need in their elderly age before they die. So are we called to give, or or so we are called to give out of our prosperity. On the first day of every week, writes Paul, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. It doesn't say, so that he may prosper. We don't give in order to get. Instead, we give because we have gotten. And what we have gotten is the forgiveness of sins at the cost of the blood of Christ. What we have gotten is this little thing called righteousness by which we can stand justified before a holy God. What we have gotten is this little thing called salvation, heaven, eternal life, by which we know, at least we should know, that we are rich beyond compare and even eternally so. Finally then, a careful balance of authority. The Apostle Paul closes out this short part of his letter by once again showing a a great pastor's heart. He has called for the gift, and he has even determined in a sense how the gift is to be given and collected, gathered on the first day of the week until, until he arrives, But he hasn't dictated how much each person should give. And then he adds this, and uh, see if you can hear Paul being careful, being uh, not being forceful, uh, not being domineering, but at the same time maintaining his authority as an apostle. He, He writes, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So, So it wasn't that he would show up take charge of the money, and off he would go to deliver it to the church in Jerusalem. Instead, he invited the church. You could even say he he charged the church to be ready to send their gift on by whomever they decide to send it by. And yet he does say, I will send those whom, or, or I will send those whom you accredit. So he doesn't set aside his authority, but he's being very careful. And he writes, if it seems advisable that I should go also, then they will accompany me. So here is, uh, here is a very wise leader in the church. He had authority. Uh, he was willing to use his authority to call for this money to be, to be gathered and given but he also wanted to be careful with how money gets handled in the church. An important lesson. 
And I, and I hope that the same wisdom, the same sensitivity, the same freedom, and yet respect for authority gets practiced here at our church. Generally speaking, the elders of the church don't go and, and say to a person, hey, you need to give more money. That could happen. Hopefully, it wouldn't need to happen. But we also don't hesitate to preach on the issue of giving and the offering because there are instructions to be heard from God's Word. There is clearly the need for the church to give if we want to keep the bills paid and, uh, and our expenses met. But there is also need for the church to give because of simple reality. A reality that determines the way we worship. Which is why there's an offering each Sunday. But the question is this, what is your reality? Not that you can decide it, but what reality have you come to realize If your reality, determined by God's Word, is that God is your Creator, and He is your Ruler, and He is your Redeemer, then your worship of Him should reflect your belief in that reality. Thus, the preaching of God's Word each Lord's Day. If your reality, determined by God's Word, is that God in His character is worthy of your praise then your worship of Him should reflect your your belief in that reality, thus the singing of God's praise from week to week. If your reality, determined by God's Word, is that Christ as God has prescribed two sacraments in connection with the new covenant in His blood, then your worship of Him should reflect your belief in that reality, thus the administration and the celebration of the sacraments within the worship service. If your reality, determined by God's word, is that God is personal, even your Father in heaven, as we dealt with this morning, if Christ is your personal Lord and Savior, the one who has reconciled you to God and is your mediator between you and God, then your worship of Him must reflect your belief in that reality and thus your prayers to God, joining in the prayers of God's people each, each Lord's Day. I've just run right through the, those five basic elements of worship again. But the same thing is true of the offering. Are, are we just hoping to keep the lights on? Uh, to keep the building heated or cooled? Uh, to keep the building maintained and the pastor supported so that he can do full-time ministry. Um, There is much reality in that reason for giving, but it's not the full reason. And paying the bills is not even the primary reason, I would argue, for our giving. We give to God as we worship God because we are only stewards. What we have is ours, But it's ours only as God gives to us each a portion, some portion of his creation to manage. 
His purpose in what he gives is to sustain us, uh, to house us, mortgage and rent payments, uh, to feed us, food bills, to facilitate our work in this world, vehicle costs. So here's the point where you are allowed to be selfish, in a sense. Uh, uh, If I can put it that way, you are allowed, even expected, to use what God gives you to meet your own needs. But even as we do so, God calls us to do two things. First, to return to Him that portion of what He has given to us that would, that would give acknowledgement of reality. The reality that all things are finally His. From the beginning and to the end, all things are His. And we are but stewards Second, we return to him that portion that will keep us from trusting uh, in the gift rather than in God the giver. In one sense, that's the essence of sin, to, to take what God has given, to divorce God partially or entirely from our reality, and to live as if creation and our own work is what keeps us alive and fruitful in this world. Once again, the application is is not some change in the way we worship. I'm not calling for change in our worship, but rather that we would understand more and be more conscious, be more intentional, that we would be more deliberate and worship God not just with our lips and with our hands, but to worship God from our hearts as we are given the opportunity to worship Him and as we are called to worship Him in that way which He commands. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do pray that You would so make Yourself known to us and so powerfully remind us of who you are and what our true and real relationship to you is, that we would indeed worship you out of that reality which you make known to us. And in our giving, O Lord, may we do so uh, with glad hearts and with a cheerful spirit and with generous hands. And may we do so, uh, may we give, O Lord, uh, to acknowledge that uh, you are a wonderful and glorious and generous God to meet our every need and who has met our every need indeed for all eternity in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.